Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and today I have an interview with international mystery and crime author J.J. Marsh about the island of Majorca, which we both love and have also both used in our novels. If you don't know Majorca, it's the largest island of the Balearics, part of Spain and in the western Mediterranean. Its strategic position on the way to North Africa meant that it has thousands of years of inhabitation, from the Neolithic period and on to the Phoenicians, the Romans, the Moors and the Catholics. If you visit the island, you'll fly into the city of Palma, which many see as a gateway to the beach resorts. But as Jill and I discussed, there is much more to see in the old walled city, as well as in Dea and the rest of the island. We share some of the places we enjoy, as well as the food and the wine you might like to try. So I love Mallorca, and as I record this on a cold, wet day in the last days of September 2020, during pandemic times, I would love to be on the island once more. The last time we went a few years back, my husband booked a yoga retreat in the interior of the island, and I insisted on a few days in Palma beforehand, as I'm far more of an architecture, history and culture fan than I am of hours of yoga every day. Now, don't get me wrong, I enjoy occasional yoga, but I'd rather be eating good food and drinking wine overlooking the ocean in the sun. So we had a few days in Palma, and one morning we walked around the corner from the hotel to find a statue outside the Francisco. Basilica. It was Junipero Serra, the friar I had read about when visiting the Mission District in San Francisco. I had known he was Spanish, but not that he was born in Mallorca and studied there before heading off to Mexico and then up the coast of what later became California, founding the missions along the way. And that moment of synchronicity tied the island of Mallorca to California and also the Inquisition, which took me to New Orleans or New Orleans. And I've done a few interviews about that, as you can find uh, in the history of the podcast. And that became the story that turned into my arcane thriller, Valley of Dry Bones. So both Jill and I talk about our love of travelling for book research and being able to find a story in any of the places we visit. So I hope Hope you enjoy escaping to the island of Mallorca with us today. JJ Marsh is the best-selling author of the Beatrice Stubbs crime series. Her latest book is The Woman in the Frame, set in Mallorca, which we're talking about today. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thanks for having me, Joe. Oh, it's great to talk to you and uh, I should say we're recording this still not in lockdown but we can't travel much so I, I uh, said to you I wish we could be on the island of Mallorca having a glass of wine to do this. Mm, I've got the exact right wine in mind as well. Oh have you? Oh we're going to come back to that. Let's start in case people don't know so why Mallorca? Tell us where it is and why you were so attracted to it you wanted to write a book. Mallorca is a Spanish island. It's the largest of the Balearics, but unfortunately, it's more associated with drunken tourism than culture. 
But if you travel away from Parma in the south towards the north, you discover a landscape and a history. And it's just such a wonderful place. You would want to keep it a secret. As for my attraction to it, that's personal. As the child of an engineer, I grew up in Nigeria and Dubai and Hong Kong. So while my teenage self was pretty well traveled, I wasn't so familiar with Europe. Then I found out that my estranged paternal grandfather lived in Mallorca. And one of my uncles engineered a family reconciliation. And when we first met him in the north of Mallorca, I was just completely enthralled, both by him and his Hemingway-esque persona and the island itself. As a story location, I think Mallorca has been waiting in the back of my mind for over 30 years. Wow, that is so interesting that you're you. obviously growing up around the world. That is is just fascinating. I just want to come back on the the drunken tourism reputation. You're right, Magaluf is oh. famous to British people as uh, young parties. But I stayed in Palma, and I actually set some of one of my books there, Valley of Dry Bones, because of the monastery and uh, the Franciscans there. And oh, yes. so. What, yeah, so, so Palma has this wonderful kind of old city of almost Templar sort of style architecture. But you're right, if you go outside of that in that area. But do, did you, do you like that old city area as well? Yeah, I do. I'm very, I'm a big fan of these kind of old historical cities. We were recently in Naples and also in Bordeaux. And those kinds of places with their history and the kind of, especially places like, Naples, which has been taken over by so many different cultures and influenced by so many external forces. Yes, I love it. And I think Palma's the same, obviously, because of where it is. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the places on the island that you uh, particularly uh, enjoy or that you featured in the book or any more unusual ones? The book is centred around uh, the town of Dea in the north, and but also Port de Soler and Soler. They're both absolutely blissful, gorgeously picturesque with outdoor markets and, and higgledy-piggledy little houses up and down the, uh, up and down the mountain. Also, Dea in particular is uh, shadowed by the mountains, the, the Tramontura, and it puts it in a little, it's like a little amphitheatre, basically. There are also all these little coves and rocky points where you can just stand and gaze at the ocean. As for unusual things that made it into the book, I think probably it's less to do with locations and more to do with the details that my my, I was 17 when I first went there. And it's little details like that that found their way in. And I had to check, of course, that they're still happening. Things like a chocolate milk drink called La Cow and black pearl earrings my father bought for me in the market. And the sardines, the smell of grilled sardines and the sound of the chicadas, all of that stuff really brings Mallorca to life for me. Oh, there was also another thing called, which my grandfather, I was 17 and not allowed to drink, but that didn't bother him. It was this, it's a drink that's sort of got an aniseed flavour called hierbas. And I got a real taste for that (laughs) at the age of 17 years old. The other thing that I've, this is the great thing about being an author, of course, you find a beautiful location and you can take it from wherever you want and put it wherever you want. So there's a cafe that appears in the book, which is actually stolen from Porto. Cafe Majestic is an Art Nouveau bar and restaurant, which I've actually just relocated to Soler. And the original Cafe Majestic, which is on Rua de Santa Catarina in Porto, is legendary for having the most beautiful architecture and the rudest waiters in the world. (laughs) That's funny. And um. In the book, you do talk about a, a poet, I, I think, who's associated, uh, another author who's associated with the island. 
Robert Graves, yes, one of the one of the wartime poets. It was interesting while I was researching all about Robert Graves, who I've always been interested in anyway, and I was also researching the other poets like Siegfried Sassoon and people like that. I found out that Siegfried Sassoon had a lover whose name was Thomas Pruitt, which is actually my real name. My writer's J.J. Marsh, but my real name is Jill Pruitt. So, yeah, there were all sorts of connections. That I went, When you start digging, you find out the most wonderful things. You would know, wouldn't you, as an archaeologist type of uh, author? <laughs> Uh, as that kind of brain yes but um yeah. so where were the places particularly associated with with graves Dea, that's where he lived oh, uh, okay. his house is still there and it's a museum that you can visit and he the, the, his great nephew a guy called simon goff wrote a book called the white goddess an encounter based on his experiences visiting his great uncle and it's just it brings the place completely to life really would highly recommend that and you mentioned there the sort of the, the ocean and also the mountains. I feel in my head the life of Mallorca is mainly around the coastline. Have you visited the interior? What is it? What is the rest of it? I think it's really interesting. The interior. It's like a lot of islands. It depends where what the action is, what's where you make your money. And so obviously, if it were agriculture or, or mining, there's also there are huge pearl factories, surprisingly, on on the island of Mallorca. So yes, definitely going in inland is wonderful but of course it depends George Sands spent some time in the north of Mallorca when she was living with Frederick Chopin they went there they went to spend the winter there thinking that the kind of heat and and the sunshine would be good for his TB but the north of the island is quite misty and foggy and and, and not very healthy for somebody with tuberculosis in those days I guess it depends where you go but yeah I would recommend going interior and they have those thinkers, don't they? These sort of large houses with a courtyard, almost like the Romans, because it gets so hot in the daytime. You have a sort of sheltered courtyard. You know what I mean? They're, they're yeah, sorry. I, I, yes, I, I misheard you when I thought you said thinkers, and I was thinking philosophers. <laughs> and I'm with you now. I'm with you, yes. Thinkers, yep, definitely. It's the same sort of thing. that They do this a lot in Spain and Portugal as well, where you have these kind of old, they call them pusadas, in Spain and Portugal, those old converted places, as you say, with large courtyards, and they're now to trans- transformed into a, a hotels, really nice hotels as well. Yes, with, with sort of shade in in mm. the hot, a hot uh, summer day. Yes, so wonderful. I I also when I was when I was in Palma, and I see the the history behind things and you talk about Robert Graves there the war poet and there's always death underlies these things but I feel like many people just see Mallorca as a sort of holiday island and it's love I think it's actually used for that love island isn't it um Mm -hmm. the tv show love island I wonder about you how do you see through beauty and this sort of tourists thing to the darker side of of places because you write murder in paradise basically in this book (laughs) murder <laughs> in paradise that's a great phrase yeah I don't know I think that having lived abroad the majority of my life away from Britain I would say that one person's paradise is another's prison I spent a lot of time in the company of people who would describe themselves as expats and I noticed there's a huge level of unhappiness even to the extent of alcoholism and a yearning to be away from those beautiful places, those glorious beaches, those jaw-dropping landscapes, whatever it might be. So there's a kind of self-deception where people want their friends and their family to envy them for the heat and the exoticism of, I don't know, their Moroccan villa with an infinity pool. 
while secretly they ache to be uh, they ache to be home with a view of Bolton Gasworks. So this kind of it's this kind of dichotomy that interests me where people start to live double lives. There's the kind of outward facing social media kind of fiction. And then there's the reality of what they're they're up to. So my books are about people, their motivations, their secrets and and the problems that result from those two things, because that's where I think it gets interesting. That's so interesting you say that actually because I lived in um, Brisbane in in Australia you know Queensland Australia got the white sand beaches blah 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 and I used to in order to write that's where I started writing I would put uh, headphones on and listen to pouring rain (laughs) and and I, I feel like there's something British about it's sunny I must go outside and of course you can't do that in Queensland it's it's just too hot and you'll never get anything done and so it's exactly what you say is this is meant to be paradise but this is not my paradise mm. yeah that's true and I think that we have that kind of concept of of work is uh, has to be dull and dreary and so on and yet when it's a beautiful place we feel almost guilty for not being out and enjoying it yeah I completely get that that makes a lot of sense to me so as someone who obviously you traveled so much what is home to you when you've been to so many places home right now is here in fact actually this is going to sound implausible but a bit like you I've always been fascinated by maps and as you just said my childhood was pretty nomadic but I do recall being when we were home in Wales one time I went into the kitchen with one of my favorite books which was the Times Atlas of the World and I said mum I've decided where I want to live when I grow up and I poked my little finger at the map of Europe and I said either there or there And she looked at the two cities and she said, that's very nice, darling, but you're learning French at school. In Turin, they speak Italian and in Zurich, they speak German. Are you sure? I said, yes, I want to be in the middle of things. And she's reminded me of that conversation every time she visited Zurich after I moved here in 2004. So home very much is here now. I'm married a Swiss guy. We've got a house and and a life here. But and I'm also very grateful for my Welsh heritage as well. That's given me that's given me a kind of cultural insight, I think, which is rather special on the kind of Celtic bow. But home to me, home to me is Europe. I've got Swiss citizenship now. I am I applied for that immediately after the Brexit referendum. Being that little bit, it really never leaves you. I've even taught my Swiss husband to say achavi, which he does rather well. <laughs> and what 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 does that mean for people? Oh, listening? it's it's achavi means it's. Don't be so disgusting. If a child picks something off the floor, you say, oh, no, don't eat that. It's a very strong one. And it's also got that kind of guttural sound. And it really sounds, put it down, that's disgusting. <laughs> that seems like an odd thing to uh, to teach him. That's useful when you've got three dogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, coming back to uh, Mallorca, your uh, main character, Beatrice Stubbs, enjoys good food and wine. And uh, you mentioned oh, yes. there uh, about what wine you, we might be drinking right now. So what are some of your recommendations for food and wine when visiting Mallorca? A wine I had in mind that uh, one of these days we will enjoy a glass is um, a red called Can Catora which um, my husband bought that for me because I've been trying to write doing rapid release, which I've never done before. And I was, I tried to write three books in six months and publish three in three months. And my kind of motivation, which I had sitting here on my desk all the way through trying to write 
the woman in the frame was a bottle of Cam Katora that when I actually finished it, I was allowed to drink. But the funny thing is about Mallorca, you'd think it would all be fish and wine, obviously being a Mediterranean island. But Mallorca's got this really interesting tradition of craft breweries. They make IPA, wheat beer and amber ale and, and, and all of it's organic and artisanal. So it's a million miles away from Carling Black Label and Magaluf. As for food, though, I'm a non-meat eater, so I love the, the seafood, the tapas and the, the quintessential tumbet, which is a vegetable dish with eggs. It's a bit like ratatouille or shakshuka. But yeah, if that's the kind of, if you really wanted to explore Mallorca in a culinary sense, that it's really got to be the fine wine and the fresh fish. Mm, absolutely. And I, I feel like there are options at all level of budget as well, because I, as I said, I think there is this sort of upper class town in Palma where you can go to some really incredible restaurants but then you can also get the sort of more street food or tapas on the beach type of thing. Absolutely yeah and the funny thing about Daya now is it used to be a kind of artist's enclave which is the Robert Graves era but now it's become a huge celebrity playground in terms of posh hotels. Richard Branson's got the got a big hotel there Lots of celebrities go there to just unwind and relax. And yeah, so it's you've got all levels. You can literally have something on the street and you can go to a five star restaurant with, with really excellent cuisine all in the same time. Isn't there a monastery in the north as well? Mm, I don't recall, but you're probably right. There must have been monks get everywhere. Yeah, they do. <laughs> but it's funny because I also think we went on a yoga retreat to Mallorca. It's, it's got that sort of level of, of yoga and spiritual and retreat, as well as the sort of eating and drinking and, and partying. It really has. And I think that's why Dea has become so well known for this kind of thing. It's just a really strange thing. As soon as you get, there's a sense of kind of well-being. And it, obviously it could be to do with the sun and the beautiful sparkling Mediterranean Sea and all the rest of it. But there's something about the sandstone and the kind of benevolent mountains above and the sea below. It's just, it really has got something special and I can't quite put my finger on it, but everyone says the same thing. It just makes you feel good. I must say, I really want to go back once we're out of the way yeah. we are in the world right now. But it's also interesting, like my husband and I love Spain. We, you know, given a choice, we we would do Spain. In fact, I almost moved to Spain back in the 90s. But where were you going to go? I was, I don't really know where, I think I fell in love with Granada and like down there in Andalusia. Mm. But what I found is that I'm a morning person and the Spanish are not it's not really a morning culture it's very much a you go out late everything's much later I'd be going to bed by half past 9 p.m and that's when people actually just start going out in the evening <laughs> true true yes <laughs> <laughs> but I wondered what given that you live in Switzerland the stereotype of the Swiss is that things are very organized pretty regulated and Spain to me is completely the opposite so what do you find truth in those stereotypes and how do you adjust being in Spain? Yeah I do I do find that those stereotypes to be true in fact um, before I, I moved to Switzerland from London but previous to that the the place I'd spent most of my time was in Portugal and that was a kind of glorious chaos and rules were just to be laughed at, basically. Whereas Switzerland, it took me a, a while to adjust to the fact that you don't, if you're living in an apartment building, you don't have a shower after 10 o'clock at night because that disturbs other people in the, and you have set washing days because the washing machines are all in the basement. 
And there were a lot of regulations. And at first I kicked against the traces, but gradually I began to realise that that's why the country works so well and that's why it's so clean and that's why it's so respectful and polite and efficient. So yes, it, it, it did take some adjustments, especially if you've moved from one place to another. And I think my previous experiences were all much more southern. So Switzerland's a strange combination of Germanic and Italian French culture. But over time, I've really grown to understand how it ticks. Haha, <laughs> ticks. See what I did there? <laughs> Absolutely. So your books are all set in different places. Uh, so what's your research process when it comes to travel? Do you decide I want to write a book there and uh, go there or do they emerge from places that you travel to anyway? A bit of both, I think. That's a, that's quite a tough question. You write in an incredible range of locations, but I've limited myself to, to one continent. And I always want to highlight something about Europe. Now, that could be something cultural, it could be something physical or whatever. So it depends. Sometimes the plot dictates the setting. So my first book was about a serial killer of unscrupulous businessmen, and that needed to be set in a financial centre. I happened to live in Zurich, so that was a no-brainer. But other times, I wanted to set a story in Rioja country. A good friend of mine lives in Vitoria Gastez. So I started looking into what possible crimes could be written about wine and found out, found out that there were a huge amount. And that's so that firstly, that was the place and then the plot. So and, and before this whole kind of shutdown business, I had an absolute blast traveling to European cities like Naples and Bordeaux for research trips with a gang of mates. And our next one was about to be Bruges, which is where I want to set my, I want to set my next book in Brussels, whether it's not Bruges or not, I'm not sure. But now things have changed and I'm just less keen to take flights. And uh, so my focus for the next book is where I can travel to by train. You can do so much as you can do so much um, online, but going there and just noticing the little tiny details make it make a big difference. So I'm currently trying to bully my husband into taking the sleeper train to Salzburg for the next book, but um, he's not given in yet. <laughs> it's so interesting. I did read the other day that because of the the different time we're in and the fact that people uh, are allowed to fly, but a lot of people don't even want to fly, that the a lot of the night trains are coming back, like they're opening more train lines across Europe. So uh, I feel like the heyday of trains disappeared with the sort of easy jet easy flight type mentality but perhaps now train travel is going to also have a bit of a, a renaissance. I really hope so I think we probably read the same article because um, I was thrilled to read about that as well but they did put a caveat towards the end of the article about how less profitable um, night trains are. It's night trains I'm particularly interested in so that you get on go to sleep in your own little compartment you don't have to go through all of the security detail and all the rest of it that you might do in an airport and then you wake up in another city which for me that sounds absolute bliss but in terms of the number of people they can fit on these sleeper trains and the number of stops that they make because usually you get people getting on and off, so you've got far mm. more people, that it's not as profitable. But I'm really hoping that you're right. I'm crossing my fingers that a kind of golden age of train travel will come back. Yeah, and I just wanted to come back on that vineyard as well. I actually uh, interviewed uh, Caro Feely on the podcast, who has a vineyard. And we talked then about all the things that can kill you in a vineyard. And it's surprising, like how many ways to die? <laughs> really, in a vineyard? <laughs> yes. 
it's just like seriously but I wondered so when you travel then so you've just so say you go to Salzburg so Uh how do you plan your research trips do you know you're going to go to specific places how how do you and then how do you document it I always find that interesting with people do you write a journal do you take pictures Yeah, I do. I take a lot of notes. I take a lot of pictures and I keep everything, all the little maps, even the kind of ticket stubs and everything like that. I put that in a little, I've got hundreds of these little books sitting here on my desk with stuff stuffed in them from all over the place. But one of the nice things I said that I usually go with a gang of friends to these places. And that actually really helps because, for example, in Naples, I had city fatigue after a couple of days and we went out for an island trip where the others went to visit Pompeii. And so I didn't actually go to see Pompeii, but one of my characters goes on, takes that train trip. So I asked them what details they could give me. And the funny thing, the funniest little details come out where one person says, they were, well, I just remember all of these lemon trees in people's back gardens. And somebody else said, actually the train station stank of wee and there was just these little things that come up that you just because I couldn't do it they went there but it's this personal kind of subjective viewpoint which makes a big difference but yeah I take loads and loads of photos I usually know where I want to go and where I'm going to set key things I don't know I don't know if you know about it but I did the Dan Brown masterclass and he says you always have that kind of theatrical set that that where where some major action happens so for example it could be the Louvre or it could be whatever um and, and in my case it's in this new book it's the uh, castle on the top of uh, Salzburg which looks across the whole city but I need to know if you can throw someone off a tower up there so the only way of doing that is by so you're taking your husband <laughs> he's already nervous why do you think he doesn't want to go <laughs> No, I think that's fascinating. And you said you've got all these um, books on your desk with all these little research things in. How do you share those things with your readers? Oh, that's a good question. I think I, I tend to you know, hold the view that you need to be a sensory writer in order to take people there. You've got to make them feel the the textures of the walls, the heat of the sand, the smell of the wine, whatever it might be. So it's very much a kind of sensory thing. But it's also the kind of juxtaposition of these things. I remember being in Rome and, and looking looking down at the Colosseum. No, yes, it was the Colosseum. And just thinking, this is extraordinarily beautiful. How can you actually conjure this up? And at the same time, there were two pigeons, either having a fight or having sex, I'm not sure what they were up to, in a tree behind me. And putting those two things together just brings that moment back. I interviewed a fascinating woman years ago who told me she travelled around India in the 1960s on her own, collecting moulage, which is a kind of wax representation of skin diseases. I know, really. Oh, my goodness. I know. But she became the moulageurs of repute. Everybody, she had a museum here in Zurich and so on. But she travelled around on, in the 1960s on her own and to remember where she'd been and what she'd seen and so on. She wrote a haiku every day. And she said, I remember her saying to me, a haiku is, is very concentrated. It's like Nescafe, but it brings it all back for you in an instant. And I don't write poetry and I don't write haikus, but that kind of little notes like that about the pigeons and the Colosseum at the same time, it makes it stick in your mind somehow. Mm, although uh, I hope no one would ever offer you Nescafe in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't accept it. 
<laughs> no, exactly. Definitely not. Then I wanted to ask you, because you we've talked a little bit about home and in fact, you actually said home in Wales. So that was quite an interesting thing there. But you, given that you've lived so many places, I, I wonder about being an outsider. I obsess about this and about the idea of the other, because when we write about different places, we're generally writing as an outsider and we're trying to distill the essence of a place. And I sometimes feel like there is this issue with stereotypes and sometimes perhaps we write to underline something that we think we know. But I also think that maybe we see a certain truth as an outsider that people who live there can't see. So what do you feel about this outsider and writing books about cultures that aren't your own? Mm, I think that's a very good point. I would agree completely with that. I... I'm going to be honest and say that from the books I've written about Beatrice Stubbs, which is all the different crime stories in different European places, she is an outsider. She's an older woman who comes from London. She she ventures into all these new places with wide eyes and a bit wet behind the ears. So she sees it as a stranger, which gives me a certain amount of license. But at the same time, you're right to say sometimes a stranger can see things that an insider can't. And I think that one of the things I'm aware of, and I need to be careful here, is that having been, I've been in Switzerland now since 2004, and gradually you start to change and you become a little bit Swisser. So I'm conscious of that as well, that that my kind of British mentality has now been, I don't know how to describe it. It's like the Swissness has come around it like a like a Scotch egg. That's probably the best way I can describe <laughs> it. But yes, so you're now looking through two different you're two different perspectives. You've got the British perspective and you've got the Swiss perspective, and you've you're a halfway house between the two. So that I remember returning to to the UK a little while ago and, and saying something about I can't even remember what it was. It was oh I know it, it was about chili peppers. And I said, jalapeno peppers. And my friends all burst out laughing and said, they're called jalapeno peppers. What are you talking about? And it's that sort of thing that here you have to pronounce things properly. If it's a Spanish word, you pronounce it in Spanish. That's made me change a little bit. So yes, I agree with you completely. You're an outsider, but you're also an insider at the same time. I think also I would say that when I first came here, I was so desperately missing my writing crew back in Britain. And after a couple of months of moaning, I just decided, well, you can either whinge about it or you can set your own thing up. So that's what I did. I put out a feelers and for other writers. And now we've got a huge, vivid community here of all sorts of people running workshops and uh, making e-signs and so on. So you become an outside insider in another way by finding your kind of group of people. And I'm not saying this is all bored housewives or anything like that. It's basically a huge international multicultural group of people who are all there the one thing that brings us together is that we're all writers so yeah Mm. you create your own kind of communities I think Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I love that. And of course, I, I visited uh, Zurich and spoke at one of your events. So, you uh, did, I really, you did. Yeah, I appreciated that. So this is books and travel. So apart from your own books, can you recommend a few books either about Mallorca or the Balearics or anything else? I think probably I'd, I'd want to start with the one I mentioned just a little earlier, which would be The White Goddess, An Encounter by Simon Goff. 
as I said, he's the great nephew of, of Robert Graves. And his recollection of the island and the artistry of, of the town of Dea in particular is almost, it's so vivid, it's almost cinematic. I enjoyed his book so much and his raconteur style that I contacted Gally Beggar, who's publishers, and I asked them if I could have an interview. I remember calling him at the appointed time and he didn't answer. So I left it for 10 minutes and I tried again. And he picked up the phone and apologised for missing the earlier call. And he said, I'm so sorry, my dear, I was trussing a pheasant. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was so precious. (laughs) Okay, so there's that one, The White Goddess, An Encounter. The second one I would say is, and this is probably not so very complimentary about Mallorca itself, that would be the A a Winter in Mallorca, Univer, Univer in Mallorca, by George Sand. And of course, that was a 19th century scandal. She was a woman who took a man's name. She was living in sin with Frédéric Chopin and her two kids. She smoked cigars. She wore trousers. And she was scandalous for Paris. But Mallorca, she was absolutely jaw-dropping. But her perspective is deeply personal because obviously they went there for his health and, and that didn't work out so well. And the third one... I can't, there's no way I can talk about Spanish set books without mentioning The Shadow of the Wind, uh, which was written by Carlos Ruiz Zafón, and he died earlier this year. It's not set on the islands, but it's set in Barcelona during Franco's dictatorship. And it's about a boy whose imagination is sparked by a story he discovers in Cemetery of Forgotten Books. It's an all-time favourite because it's got that kind of, not magical realism, it is realistic, but it's also... Imaginative, imaginative and fantastical and then also it comes crashing up against that horrible brutality of the the Franco regime. I compared it previously to Night Train to Lisbon by Pascal Mercier which is set in Portugal and The Mysterious Flame of Queen Loana by Umberto Eco set in Italy. They're both the same, they're all about a, a love affair with books and imagination but set against the backdrop of brutal dictatorships. Now, I've just realised all three of those are historical fiction. I've just outed myself as an HF fan. God. <laughs> oh, no, that's brilliant. So where can people find you and your books online? My website is jjmarshallauthor.com. I'm also very active on Facebook. I've got a, a Beatrice Stubbs page, a JJ Marsh page, and we do lots of chats and carryings on over there. And that's also JJ Marsh author. I'm on Twitter, but mostly ranting about politics. And I'm also on Instagram, but again, mainly sharing pictures of cows. So <laughs> it's not that fascinating. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Jill. That was great. Absolute pleasure, Joe. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.